Kim McNicholas on innovation. Spotlighting successful entrepreneurs, innovators, investors, and industry experts. Their stories and insights can help you become better informed, better educated, and a better investor. Your host is Emmy Award-winning anchor, reporter, and writer Kim McNicholas. Kim has been a journalist at Forbes magazine, a Fox News Channel contributor, vetted more than 3,000 startups, and has been a mentor for entrepreneurs around the globe. Now, Kim McNicholas on innovation. Welcome to the show. Today's show is all about food innovation. We have the brainchild behind foodcrossroads.org, an event about the emerging topics in food, not the typical sugar, GMOs, things like that. Dr. Jun Yoon considers those 1990s topics way in the past. And yeah, you're just hearing about them now or maybe just a few years ago in the mainstream. What he's all about and what you're going to hear over the next hour is what are you going to hear about 10 years from now in the mainstream that you're going to hear first right here and right now. Dr. Junyun is the president of Palo Alto Investors, a hedge fund founded in 1989 with $2 billion in assets. He's also a radiologist, and he is a member of the president's circle of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, and so much more. And I'll have his entire bio on the innovators.network as soon as this show posts. Doctor, thank you so much for being here. Really excited to, to talk about Food and food innovation and everything that we're, most people aren't even going to hear about for another 10 years. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show, Kim. So what was your inspiration for creating Food Crossroads? Well, food is something that we all care about. I'm a medical doctor and I'm interested in many aspects of healthcare. But food is a topic that whenever it comes up, something it's something that really inspires people to take action because it's something you do every day and something you're going to do probably in the next six hours. It's something I think about probably 24-7. (laughs) Especially I just got back from Italy and all I thought about was food and wine and food and wine and food and wine. (laughs) Food is supposed to be great. Food for the longest time was seen as a source of life. And somewhere in the last century, it started to take on a a negative, uh, negative air about it. Words like junk food was, you know, was created 1970s. Uh, the concept of allergies and aversion. These are totally modern concepts. So how do we go from food being the source of life to this other thing that we are now have a love-hate relationship with? And so when you developed foodcrossroads.org and the most current event that you're holding on this topic, you were saying that the GMOs, the sugars and everything, those were all stuff you were talking about in the 1990s. Now everybody's just hearing about it. What is it that you're focusing on going into this most current event that most people aren't going to hear about for another 10 years? Sure. And I wasn't the one talking about those those things. Other scientists are talking about gut biome, GMO, sugar in the 90s, mm-hmm. and they weren't getting any attention. They were speaking to virtually empty rooms. And somehow these things became really popularized topics, which is a good thing. And we mm-hmm. still need to learn a lot more about those subjects. I think they're very exciting in terms of research. But as things get overplayed in media, I am as interested in what are the things that people are, aren't talking about. Yes, that's me too. I want to hear what people... So when everybody starts focusing on one thing, I'm like, but what are they missing now? What's next? Exactly. Who are the people speaking to empty rooms today that are doing phenomenal science? So I've spoken to a lot of the great food scientists around the country. 
this is just kind of what I do. I do research and I, I talk to great people. And I'm gathering some of my favorite food scientists all in one room so we can have one conversation in front of our local audience. Yeah, and you have we have one of your speakers actually right now on the phone. We have Dr. Dari Musafarian, who is the, a dean over at Tuft University. And he's one of those that, I don't know, would you consider him you know, the type of person that's speaking to empty rooms right now? <laughs> he's got quite an audience. He's an ex- excellent speaker. <laughs> but his, his, um, his science and his knowledge and his insights are just starting to surface. So it's a great time to put in front of an audience. Hi, doctor. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, sure. Ha- happy to be joining from Boston. And so I am going to repeat myself probably several times during this show, but we're not talking about sugars. We're not talking about GMOs. What are we talking about? While everybody's looking in that direction in the mainstream right now, where are you focused on? Well, I think there's you know three really big areas that we're going to cover on, on food crossroads in San Francisco, uh, big broad areas in each of these we can expand on in the next few minutes. You know, the first is is just the in- incredible impact that food has on you know almost every aspect of our lives, from our health to healthcare costs, competitiveness of business, the environment, um, you know, climate change, disparities, military readiness. You know, all of these topics, and I think you know people know food is important, but the magnitude of these effects is is really remarkable. I, I think the the second thing that we're understanding is you know the beautiful complexity of how foods and what we eat influence our health. Um, you know, we, I would say we're, you know, in a very, had a very simplistic understanding 20 or 30 years ago of a lot of the, the science. And we're just starting to scratch the surface of some of these really complicated and exciting areas, which, which I'll share with you. And then I think the third thing we're going to be talking about, which is also important, is you know, food news was the original fake news before this, this you know, administration and fake news became a popular term. That's going to uh, be my favorite quote coming out yeah, of this. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's true for, for at least a decade. Food news has, has been the fake news. And so how do you cut through all of that misinformation and how do you get, you know, truth from, from fiction? And I think all of that's crucial. So how do you cut through that fake food news? Well, so I, you know, I've been dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts for about three years. And one of the reasons I, I came to Tufts, I was on the faculty at Harvard for about ten years before that. And Tufts is really one of the few institutions I think in the country that's bringing together the nutrition science, the policy science, the environmental science, and the communication science. And, mm-hmm. and what I found is that academics, we have the scientists, we have the information, but we're not generally very active and proactive about getting it to people. And so the the loudest voices out there are... Right, the industry voices, the sponsors, the corporate sponsored voices. And I know you can't mention companies, but the Monsantos of the world. I know Monsanto, you know, is kind of the buzzword of the day when it comes to... That. And also not just the corporate voices, but the media, the, the bloggers, the, the, you know, just all the people interested in food, Some, many of them with the best interests, you know, to try to get information in the public. Sometimes the loudest voices are the least informed. And so, you know, I, I think it's really crucially important for, you know, scientists, academics with the science to be actively getting that to, to the public and so to, to be that trusted voice. And so this event and other things that we're, we're working on, um, are ways to, to try to take a much more proactive role. We don't want to be sitting in the ivory tower that academics get blamed, blamed about. You know, we want to be out there and, and making sure that policymakers, industry, the public, media, you know, everybody, everybody knows the, the cutting-edge science. 
And so what are a couple of the key points? And, and I hope you don't mind. We only have a couple minutes left in this break. Hopefully you can still stay with us for a few more minutes um, after we come back from break. But in the meantime, oh, uh, give me a couple of key insights that you're going to be sharing with people that we won't hear for another t- 10 years in the mainstream. Well, so I think first, and hopefully we'll make it faster than 10 years, but, but I think, you know, first, one of the key issues now for obesity is that not all calories are the same. And there are so many policies and so many decisions that people are making now based on, on counting calories. And I think we're learning that the way foods affect our weight uh, and the pathways are so incredibly interesting. And we really have to think about foods differently when it comes to weight. And I can give you so many examples from low-fat salad dressing to baked potato chips to chocolate skim milk, you know, to all the ways that people think they're doing their bodies better by having fewer calories, but are actually, you know, probably harming themselves. I, I think a second incredibly interesting area is the area of the the trace bioactives and flavanols and phenolics that are in foods, foods like coffee and tea and cocoa, beans, um, nuts, seeds. You know, for, for many years, we focused on macronutrients, carb and protein, uh, and then you know, more recently, we started focusing on vitamins and fiber, things like vitamin C, vitamin E. You know, these things are, are present at, you know, one one-hundredth or one one-thousandth the levels of, of those uh, compounds and foods, but maybe the most, most important. Uh, and then I think the third thing that we're trying to figure out, which is also really important as a science, is how to get people to change their behavior. And I think for too long, we've been focused on kind of just willpower and education and messaging rather than understanding it's about, you know, changing, changing the systems around people's decisions. And, and uh, you know, I, if we, I, I can stay through the break and we can talk about some other examples of, of how we've been successful in public health by not focusing on individual willpower, but on, on changing systems. Perfect. We'll be right back. Now, back to Kim McNicholas on innovation. Welcome back to the show. We are talking food insights and innovation, the next trends in food and health. We have Dr. Jun Yun and Dr. Dari Musafarian on the phone. Dr. Yun is here in, in studio. Thank you for being here. And he recruited Dr. Musafarian all the way from Boston, from Tuft University, Dean of Nutrition and Policy. Is that correct? That's close enough. (laughs) (laughs) I just condensed it. I shortened it. (laughs) That's what I do. Um, Before the break, you were giving us um, a few examples of some big changes that we could hope to see um, in food. So you said that you have some more examples. And I'm curious, what is the greatest example of how we will shift our mindset on some aspect of food? You're hoping now, but probably more likely in the next five to ten years. Well, I don't know. You know, I won't give you the, the, the best example, but let me give you some examples. So, we want the best think, example. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so many. I, I think, you know, first, innovation is, is absolutely essential. So we're not going to solve today's problems with today's solutions and certainly not with yesterday's solutions. And I think that takes a, a mental leap for many people to, to think about. So I'll give you three examples, one from the world of food, one from the world of sustainability, and, and one from the world of, of agriculture. So on the food side, we thought of cheese for you know, decades as a source of fat and saturated fat, something that will you know, make you gain weight and give you heart disease. And yet, you know, the growing evidence suggests that cheese is pretty neutral for weight gain and obesity, pretty neutral for heart disease, and in fact, may actually lower risk of type 2 diabetes. And while none of that is yet conclusive, there you know, are really interesting signals and new science about the fermentation process of cheese and how fermentation may introduce 
new trace nutrients interact with the gut microbiome and, and that cheese may actually reduce diabetes. And then secondly, growing evidence about a natural fat layer that's normally present in milk fat called milk fat globule membrane that actually may change how our genes function and our genes respond to food. And so that's just one example, fermentation, milk fat globule membrane. A food is common and as ancient as cheese, and we're just starting to understand that, that how that might influence our, our health. A second example from the world of sustainability, many people don't realize that methane production from, from cows, from beef, the methane production is a CO2 equivalent, and that greenhouse effect for cows is, is similar as all of the world's transportation combined, all the cars, trains, planes, boats in the world combined, you know, in terms of greenhouse gas effects. Well, many companies and, and scientists are working on technologies through interactions with the cow's microbiome, either enzymes or algae or, or other technologies to reduce methane emissions. And DSM, actually, a, a big company, is is working on a project called Clean Cow, which, which they say will reduce methane emissions by 30 to 40 percent. So to put that in perspective, if we were able to reduce methane emissions from cows by 30 to 40 percent across the world, that would be the single biggest advance for the environments and sustainability and climate change of the 21st century. The, the whole world would meet the Paris Accords, you know, overnight. Right, and but then, how then, would that impact? And the big question is, so you're yeah. changing the gut in a sense of the cow. How does that affect the food that we get and the milk that we get from the cow? Well, so, you know, that obviously needs to be understood. The scalability needs to be understood. You know, some initial reports suggest since the, the cow's not making methane, it has to do other things with the energy, and it actually leads to increased milk production, which is quite interesting. So that would actually give the farmers a, a, a double benefit. So that obviously has to be well understood. Um, and then I think the third example from agriculture um, is, you know, for, for centuries, humans have bred seeds to, for their yield and for their pest resistance. That's pretty much been the, the two driving forces and maybe for their drought resistance. But really, it's about yield and pest and drought resistance. And shockingly, you know, we haven't spent much time or much focus on, on breeding plants for their flavor or for their health. And so I think that's a huge area for the future for, for plant breeding, thinking about actually breeding plants that are uh, uh, taste better and actually are healthier. And, and as, as obvious as that may seem, that's actually a major innovation in, in the world of, of seeds. So those are just three examples. And, and Tim Griffin, who is, is a faculty member at our school, a real champion and expert in the area of food systems and sustainability, can, can maybe talk more about the, those things. And what do you think about just, you know, in a sense, creating uh, plant-based burgers, in a sense, um, you know, versus using, you know, more cattle or, or whatever, but making our food in the lab and trying to, instead of just, you know, shifting people towards just healthier food altogether, but creating new forms of the food that people consider bad, but making them good. Does gonna, that make sense? We're going to have the investor from Impossible Foods there on stage as well. Oh, interesting. And so that would be probably him that could answer that. Uh-huh. Yes, it's him. It's yeah, him. I, I think one, I mean, one thought I have is that, you know, the, the, even the term plant-based foods you mentioned, I think we need to advance beyond that because actually many of the worst things in our food supply are plant-based. You know, French fries and Coca-Cola are vegan and plant-based. And even if they're organic and local and non-GMO, it's still fries and a Coke. And so we have to move beyond kind of these, 
simplistic terms, which which are great sound bites, but food is much more interesting and complicated. So I, I think there is a, a role for you know animal foods in a healthy diet. Absolutely, uh, fish in particular, probably dairy and cheese and yogurt in particular. Um, and as I said, even you know red meats, as long as they're not processed or cured. You know, once in a while, red meats in a diet could could be very healthy. And so, the biggest issue has been environmental and also animal welfare. If we can, you know, solve those things with technology, that could be tremendous. But, you know, the, the future is not going to look like today. And so, you know, 50 years from now, you know, the Jetsons, where you press a button and your food is bioengineered <laughs> by your refrigerator. I mean, that 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 may be possible. Um, so, I think we really have to think about and understand all the ways that we need to grow food in a more healthful way because it's just such an incredible priority for for our health and for the planet, for disparities, uh, for for governments, for businesses. Sound Bites is a great double entendre. It's about the right kind of food we put in our mouths. Mm -hmm. And we are at the skimming at the level um, to um, riff off of another, uh, (laughs) another metaphor here about bovines, but... You know, the trans fat uh, story is an example. I learned this from Dari. Um, you know, we know so little about trans fat, and yet we talk about it all the time. So the history of trans fat is so fascinating. Dari, would you mind sharing with uh, the audience the history of trans fats? Well, so, so uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's complicated and, and a little bit, you know, science-heavy, but, you know, trans fats were basically... Um, discovered over 100 years ago um, through through some scientific processes as a way to turn healthy plant-based oils into solid fats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, plant-based oils are much cheaper than, than animal fats. And so this was first a cheap way to make solid fats for, for cooking or baking during the Great Depression and World War II. And then when, you know, there was an acceleration of concern about health effects of saturated fat and animal fat in the 50s and 60s, you know, the use of trans fats took off through the 70s and 80s. You know, what we didn't think about and realize is that, you know, fatty acids are incredibly bioactive and have effects on our cell membranes, on our cell receptors, on our genes, on, you know, metabolites for inflammation and glucose and insulin, many other pathways. So the same, you know, chemical properties that altered the plant-based oil for cooking, you know, altered what it did in our bodies. And so that, of course, led to this, you know, relatively recent understanding of the harms of trans fat and they've been you know largely removed from the US food supply although like many of the worst aspects of the American food system they're being they've been exported to, to the world into poorer countries thank you so much we're gonna have to continue food insights in just a moment for more on dar you can definitely go to foodcrossroads.org thank you doctor for joining us and everyone else Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Now, back to Kim McNicholas on innovation. Welcome back to the show. We have Dr. Junyun. He is the brainchild behind uh, at a current event that's that's happening in San Francisco. It's called uh, Food Crossroads, and you can find out more at foodcrossroads.org. Um, so this is all about food insights, food innovation, and, and the things that you're not going to hear for another 10 years in the mainstream, but you're going to hear right now. Joining us on the phone, we have Tim Griffin. He's the director of the Agriculture, Food, and Environment Program at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University, calling in from Boston, I believe. Yes, that's right. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Before the break, we were talking with um, Dr. Dari Musafarian, who's also with Tufts. And yes. he was mentioning kind of that intersection and all the innovation, you know, at the intersection of 
food and sustainability and um, sharing some key insights there. But I hear you can take it to even another level because you're really immersed in it. What are some of the key insights that you can share that's really within your purview? What I think one of the things that we think about is that uh, the foods that people eat, you know, we collect foods, various places and, uh, and make diets out of them and they use resources in different ways. And that means that the way that we use some resources like water and land now uh, influences how we're able to meet those needs in the future. So that's really the uh, direct link between diets and foods and at least environmental sustainability. What do you think the biggest shifts are going to be in the next five years along those lines? I think that the big uh, topic of discussion is, you know, plant-based foods and, and animal-based foods. And, uh, you know, there's been consistent recommendations for decades from U.S. government, USDA, and others about, uh, you know, focusing on uh, plant-based foods, not necessarily exclusively, but certainly as a major part of the diet. Um, and it's just, you know, those decisions are made at the level of individuals buying food for themselves and for their families so that the, some of the changes occur fairly slowly. But um, certainly in the last three or four years, a lot more discussion about that than I would have predicted uh, before that. And there's a big move right now towards getting people, it seems, off of meat, but meeting people where they are and guiding them to where they want to be. So they're making, they're changing in a sense, and I'm not a chemist or a biologist or anything scientist. So I don't know what's what really goes into taking a plant and turning it into the the texture and look of a hamburger. So there are people actually selling these plant-based hamburgers that look and feel like hamburgers and they do this all in the lab i kind of get why they're doing that you need to reach people where they are maybe guide them where they want to be and maybe ultimately they won't crave that hamburger look and feel anymore and they'll be craving plant-based stuff but is that really healthy do we really know enough about that we, we probably don't know enough. I mean, we're just at the very front end of that. But, I mean, I think that the, the, when we focus on just uh, individual parts or pieces of the diet, we kind of miss the picture that it's your entire diet that actually makes the difference. So, you know, we routinely substitute one thing for another, and it could be, you know, I'm, I'm tired of eating this plant, so I'm going to eat another one. So those kinds of decisions are things that we do all the time. And uh, I, I think focusing on what are healthy ways of eating rather than thinking about uh, does a healthy diet just mean one particular thing? It means that I eat a lot of this or I eat a little of this or none of this. Um, I don't think that's how a lot of people think about um, how they put their uh, eating patterns together. And we, we've been talking throughout the show about the fact that in the 90s, all of you were talking about sugars and GMOs and everything. And that's mm-hmm. just now hitting the mainstream. What are you talking about right now that's not being talked about in the mainstream that will be talked about in the next well, five to 10 years? Yeah, yeah, I think there's I mean, those are good examples because, again, they focus on 
uh, an individual, in those cases, maybe not even a food, but a component of a food and mm-hmm. how that might influence your health. And eventually, we have to think bigger than that. We have to uh, not only think about diets, but we have to think about what is the, you know, if, if uh, the population or a big part of the population shifted their diets, then that has impacts going all the way back to farms and ranches, both in this country and outside of the U.S., and one of the things that we're really interested in is what do those linkages look like and then potentially what are the nudges, uh, not only at the diet and health end, but all the way back to the beginning of the supply chain. And that's a much more complex set of issues than, uh, you know, a food component or an individual food. And um, there's there are interesting things going on out there that are beginning to to, you know, the, the discussion of uh, farm to fork or farm to table, right. not necessarily just in restaurants, but even in households, those, you know, people are starting to think about or recognize the fact that all of those things are linked together. Uh, and, and that's something that if we, if we are looking, you know, backwards over the last 15 or 20 or 25 years, that's... Uh, maybe the piece that's missing. We tended to look at very narrow slices of this, but eventually we have to look at the system. What has been the greatest aha moment for you in your research? Uh, the greatest aha moment? Oh, that's that's a good one. I mean, I, I think that, um, that uh, you know, thinking about the different, uh, the different ways that we produce food and the different scales, uh, that food production and also, you know, all the other parts of the system, that that uh, all of those things are linked, and I don't necessarily see any of them going away. So it's not about, you know, should we, should we not have any big farms but only have small farms? You know, in reality, we're going to have big farms and small farms. And uh, the – that that's been um, kind of something that's evolving in my own thoughts over the last few years. Um, and then the different ways that uh, people's decisions get influenced because there had been a lot of, there has been a lot of focus on, you know, things like recommendations that, uh, that come from uh, USDA uh, how much? Know, how many of those recommendations are bought and paid for by corporate America, though? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> you have to wonder. You know, you have some great law, high-paid lobbyists there with a lot of power. You do. You do. I mean, and and it's uh, you know all of those the development of those kinds of guidelines is definitely a process, and I was involved in the last iteration of that, specifically thinking about what is the connection between the way that we eat and and environmental sustainability. So, uh, you know, those in the in the uh, recommendations that come from not just USDA, but other government uh, agencies, that's one piece of it. And then there is the piece that says, you know, consumers, uh, people who buy food and eat food are uh, are now making requests or demands of the companies that they're dealing with at the retail level or at the processing level and saying, you know, what are you doing? What, what are you doing to make the situation better, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, 
diet quality and making us healthier, or is it uh, things that you're doing that are making the planet healthier? So there's there's roles for government, but there's also roles for businesses. And you know, we shouldn't forget that uh, the the types of things that we buy to make up our diets that's the driver. And so each of us individually also has a role to play here. So you know, thinking of it as it has to be government or it's all business. They're all related, and then there's us, those of all of us that buy food. So we also make decisions, and that influences what direction the system moves. And do you think with our current buying habits and the push more towards, or I should say the popularity of farm-to-table or Mm farm-to-fork, do you think that we're going to see maybe a a grander shift away from centralized food distribution versus localized food distribution, Uh, more of like what we see that seems so old school in, um, in Italy, for example, more trattorias. Yeah. Yeah. I I think what we will see is, uh, is maybe a recognition that all of those are, uh, that those different, um, Scales, if you will, and the different kinds of connections that they all have a role because for, you know, we, we had been talking for a long time, you know, the food system's global, uh, you know, if, if the system pushes to have bigger businesses and bigger farms, that's okay. And then there's just, there's pushback against that. And I don't, I think it's, uh, it's okay. And it's, healthy within the food system to have those different scales. Mm-hmm. And, and we collectively need to make a decision about, do we think that's important? Do we think that we, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, you know, kind of the way that food is viewed in Italy and, and other places. Um, that's present in the U.S. The, the, the kind of questions that are following on from that are, who has access to or or who is able to look at food in that way? Because if it's just that you can experience that uh, because you can pay more, then, you know, we need to think about uh, consumers that can't pay more and what are the ways that they can either have healthier food or even have foods that are culturally uh, important, which is a lot of what we see in Italy and other countries in Europe. Well, thank you so much, Tim Griffin, for all of your insights. He's the director of the Agriculture, Food and Environmental Program for Friedman School of Nutrition, Science and Policy at Tufts University. We'll be right back with Dr. June Yoon. He's going to be talking about the latest on food allergies, what you should know. So stay with us. Now, back to Kim McNicholas on innovation. Welcome back to the show. Today's show is all about food innovation. We have the brainchild behind foodcrossroads.org. It's an event about the emerging topics in food. Everything that you will hear about in the mainstream 10 years from now, you're going to hear right now um, from Dr. June Yoon. So we have a lot to cover in eight minutes or less. (laughs) Why don't we start with, what do you think? Food allergies. What don't we know? Well, thanks, Kim. Um, you know, the genesis behind Food Crossroads is to cover subjects that are emergent. So mm-hmm. I don't get involved in things that are 50-50. I like getting involved in things that are 1 in 99. And most of the time, the 99% is right. But when the 1% is right and you're on it, that's what actually is transformative. So gut biome and GMO were the 1% in 1990, and now they're 
And uh, so now it's just a food fight. I bet they're both right. Both sides are right. <laughs> no pun <but>. intended. <laughs> exactly. So what, um, we're going to cover a lot of subjects that are right now the 1% to see if, if these things are relevant for the public. So food allergies is one of these things. Food allergies is obviously a rapidly growing condition. There's not much we know about it. The cause, not much we know about the solutions. The piece that I'm interested in, there's lots of parts that are interesting, but the piece I'm focused on, the, the 0.1%, is the idea that maybe these folks with food allergies just can't mount enough epinephrine on their own? Do they have an epinephrine insufficiency? Because all we know, we know there's 100 million people that have allergies, but it's the 1% that have anaphylaxis that we care about. And my nine-year-old son, who has no medical background, but because he's nine years old, he can actually see the reality. He said, you know, all these seizures that are carrying EpiPen. So his question was, maybe you just can't make an epinephrine. So we looked at it in the literature. No one had mm-hmm. thought about it. Uh, and we started funding a clinical trial at Stanford to study the ability of food allergy patients to mount their own epinephrine response. And the results so far are really striking. They cannot do it. And that completely explains why a little bit of epinephrine rescues them. So this is a brand new frontier. We're going to talk about that on Monday as an example. That's fantastic. Okay, just because we have to keep moving on. And this is stuff that we can expand on maybe in the future. But what about stress hormones in food? We really need to study this a little bit more. Yes. So I eat a, a complete unique diet mm-hmm. that's based on the provenance of food and their stress experience and not the type of food. So we tend to really categorize food based on whether it's an animal or plant or whether it's a cow mm-hmm. or chicken. I think completely differently. I think about the life experience of the food. We don't know um, what's really happening biologically with these uh, highly stressful conditions we're raising our Uh, animals and plants. And so our supply chain is highly stressed right now because of industrialization. Everything about profits, about food, um, puts the plant and and animals in a more stressful condition. But we do know when it comes to the wine industry, I mean, here in in wine country, we know that certain wines actually are made and taste the way they do because Mm -hmm. of the stress and them being stressed to find water. Right. And I'm I'm agnostic to whether they're uh, tasty or not. I'm just wondering about should we be measuring the stress hormones of Mm. the foods of the animals and plants? Because right now the animals are, they have high cortisol, they have diabetes, they have hypertension, they have obesity. And isn't it funny when we eat animals that are like that, we take on the exact same diseases. So the question is, are we eating stress? Uh, so in th- instead of thinking about food as just nutrition and calories, I'm curious about the third vertical, is food information? And are we learning about the stress ecology of our world through the supply chain? If they have a stressful experience, are we taking on the stressful phenotype mistakenly? We have not studied these things. And so this is a virgin area uh, that I would like to fund research in to study the stress hormones and all the other biochemical components of the foods. Does it have, does it activate our stress response? It's like the golden rule. If we stress them out, does it stress us out when we eat it? If we treat them well, does it lower our stress? And same with plants. People don't know about the stress hormones of plants, which is amazing. The stress hormones of plants is ethylene, which is C2H4, the second simplest hydrocarbon on the planet. And no one ever taught me about it. Uh, there's no conspiracy. Uh, we just forgot to teach students about ethylene, the stress hormones of plants, which is ironic because this is the most synthesized chemical on the planet for industrial use, mm-hmm. 109 million metric tons. Wow. We are mass producing stress hormones of plants. And what are we doing with all this? And what are the biologic effects of consuming ethylene? It has not been studied since the 1920s and 30s. The side effects of ethylene, which was used as an anesthetic back then, our water retention, hypertension, high sugars, you know, just all the same things that cortisol does. And right now, ethylene is not regulated. I would like to know what effect does it have in our body. 
And what are the things, um, what are the other things that plants manifest that have hormonal effect in us when we eat it? Right. And that could ultimately be leading to, while we talk about um, creating a balanced diet, you say that maybe having a balanced diet could be creating obesity. And one of the reasons could be that maybe as we're eating more of these plant-based diets, maybe we need to be careful what types of plants we're eating and what is the stress that the plant went through in order to, you know, get on your your dinner plate. Right. All this needs to be empirically validated through science. So I don't know yet. We need to study these things. Mm-hmm. The balanced diet thing is just funny because um, it was an artifact of all the lobbying in the 70s and everything got put on it. But it actually becomes less funny when you think about the fact that we are so reliant on taste fatigue to stop eating. And when you have a balanced diet, you get tired of the meat, then you eat the potatoes. You get tired of the potatoes, you eat your vegetables, you get tired of that, you eat the dessert. So you end up actually potentially packing in more calories by eating a balanced diet than eating a narrow diet. Remember, nature made us eat very narrow diets. And also this whole concept of savor dessert till the end is an example of like a, a stale recommendation. Maybe that made sense when we're starving to death. But now that we're fighting obesity, why are we still saying savor dessert till the end? Because then you're eating a massive calorie bomb after you're full. Uh, all these things relate to a kind of a really big topic, um, which is the purpose of the food crossroads. Food is fundamentally changed from something that's positive to something that we're worried about. Um, even bigger issue than fake news is fake foods, and they both have the same underlying cause. Until 50 years ago, the source of information and source of food was somebody that cared about us, mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And since industrialization, it's now become a counterparty. Other people are giving us food and information, and they care about themselves more than you. That single change from somebody who's aligned with you to somebody who's a counterparty has changed everything. Processed information is as dangerous for your health as processed foods is. We have to think for ourselves. And for more information, go to foodcrossroads.org. And hopefully, thank you so much, doctor, for, for coming on and sharing this information. And we'll have to have you back maybe in December. We'll talk a little bit more. Thanks, Kim. We'd love to. Thank you. Have a great weekend, everybody. This has been Kim McNicholas on Innovation. You can connect with Kim on Facebook forward slash Kim McNicholas or email Kim McNicholas at gmail.com. Be sure to join us again next Friday at one for Kim McNicholas on Innovation.